Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. That's Mike Madrid. We're back today to answer some of your questions. We had such a great time the last time we did this. We thought we'd do it more often. Um, so we've got some questions from our listeners. Uh, we've got some comments and reviews we're going to talk about. And as many of you know already, Mike is a senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute. Uh, he's my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project and is now a senior fellow at the University of California at Irvine's School of Social Ecology. Mike, great to see you. Good morning. Great to be with you, man. I love this format. I love I love doing this. I, 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 ever since we met on the Lincoln Project and started engaging uh, folks and helping answer questions, I just love that that's a part of what we do. And I love I love what you do here with Mailbag. So let's, let's get on it. The great thing is we would be doing this anyway, I think. And so this is just an excuse to do it in front of a microphone. But as a matter of fact, we'll talk a little bit later about the um, the exchange we were having yesterday over uh, Christian supremacy. But we'll save that for a little later. Um, let's uh, dig in. Just so the yeah. audience knows, too. Yeah. Like what you hear Ron and I talking about on Politicology is the way we talk all the time. <laughs> like we, that, that, is, that is what we do. We talk it's about all of these a- topics. It's not like we're just doing it for an hour a week. It's what we literally talk about all the it's time. It's actually what we do, yeah. First question is from Keith. Uh, Keith L. wrote in and said, Hi, Ron, longtime listener. Love the show. What do you make of Lauren Boebert's move from the third to fourth congressional district? From what I understand, her new district is whiter, more educated, and more Republican. I remember Mike Madrid saying college-educated voters at the dividing line within the GOP in terms of being for Trump or against him. The fourth district leans 27 points in the GOP's favor, according to a nonpartisan analysis of election results from 2016 to 2020 by staffers for the Colorado legislature. Here's the question. Is there any chance of a Democrat upsetting Boebert here, or is that a pipe dream? Any chance that Boebert doesn't make it out of the crowded field of GOP competitors? Look, Mike, you have to hand it to Politicology uh, listeners when they write in because they are so detailed with their questions. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing. What do you say to Keith? It is a great question. So let me start from the, the top level. The unfortunate thing about Lauren Boebert moving is she was vulnerable enough to be picked off in her current seat. And she would have lost to a Democrat. Um, she saw that. I think the House, Republican House Conference saw that and said, you're going to lose this seat. We've got a problem here. And um, the, the writing was kind of on the wall. So she did, She made the right move for her and for the House Conference, which was get out of that seat, let another Republican that doesn't have all of her baggage uh, defend the seat that she's in, and Republicans, in all likelihood, unless there's a, a big blue wave, will will be able to defend that seat. She did go to, as you know, Keith was right. She moved to a more Republican seat, and the answer to whether or not she can get out of the primary is really a function of the composition of the primary electorate. The more candidates in that field, the better chance she has. Okay, now let's assume that she does get out. I don't think she will, by the way, because I think as long as there's, you know, three strong contenders, um, she's probably not going to be she probably won't get out. If she's if there's five or six, she stands a much better chance. So the more in that primary field, the better it is for Boebert. Um, But let's say she does get out. It's so Republican. It's kind of like Marjorie Taylor Greene's district at that point. Is, yeah. is she becomes so safe that it doesn't it doesn't matter, and it, even though the, the the educational levels are very different than Marjorie Taylor Greens, mm-hmm. it's still pretty hardcore Republican. 
Now, a lot of listeners will you know know that Ron and I kind of specialize and talk a little about you know the defections of Republicans in this transition that is changing. Got to keep in mind, we're talking really marginal numbers here. So in 2020, when we were talking about Republican defections in the Bannon line number, and again, every race has its own dynamics, we were talking four to seven percent. We obviously exceeded that, got nine percent of Republicans to defect off of Trump. And you see um, Trump barely win in large part because of this Hispanic and and African-American shift rightwards that happened in 2020 offset the Republican defections. This dynamic is a little bit different this year. And what we're seeing is probably those shifts may happen to a larger degree. Right now, we're sitting at about a 15, 18% Republican saying, I won't vote for Trump regardless. That's what Haley's numbers were showing. And that number, that dynamic is, the, I, to me, the key data points to watch heading through 2024. Yeah, the question is whether they're in the right places, in the right battlegrounds. And, That's 100% and, right. Yeah, and, 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 and also- California Republicans defecting, it doesn't matter. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, and and also to uh, to that point about not being competitive, we should know. I think it's north of eighty five percent of districts now are so uncompetitive that even you know the, the the race is the primary as this one will be, and once you get to the general, they're basically locked in. Um, it's it's five percent. It. Yeah, we're talking yeah, about it's, maybe a dozen truly competitive seats. Yeah, maybe. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, moving on, Matthew O asks. Why does no one ever mention attrition when it comes to the 2024 election? Since the last election, we have four years worth of young people entering voting age, and in theory, four years of the oldest people who voted in 2020 passing away. I realize getting 18 to 22-year-olds to turn out isn't easy, but surely this shift since 2016 will have at least some impact. If most older people lean to Trump, won't there be an impact? And I think, Mike, this invokes our uh, recurring discussion of shifting demographics, the loss of Republican voters after 2020, and uh, and the election subversion, January 6th politics? Yeah, that's a great question. So here's some basic math on that. Every day in America, 10,000 people turn 18 years old and are eligible to vote. And on that same day, 7,500 people die in America, most of them older, not all of them. But those numbers compounded every day over four years can make a very significant, sizable impact. But here's the funny thing about attrition is every day, everybody gets older. (laughs) So you have younger voters also moving into a different life cycle and becoming older voters and their voting patterns change. And that's one of the funny things and the beautiful things about political demography is none of this really happens in a vacuum, right? You can hear, you know, this crazy guy, Mike Madrid, talking about a Bannon line, and this is the number that you need of Republicans, or some people say this is how much Latino vote or female vote or African-American vote. There's some, there, there's a lot of truth to that from the models that we're looking at, but none of these, any one of these, nothing happens in a vacuum. Right. It's and none of these are dynamic. modeling either. Right. Exactly. So I love modeling, but I'm, uh, and I, uh, you know, I'm one of the few political consultants that still it literally sits down with like pen and paper and will model and like write out the math and, and attack these questions that were just asked. But the truth is that they're very good guides, mm-hmm. but because the electorate is dynamic, every, all of these things are moving. There is moving much less in a hyper-partisanized environment, but they're still moving. And so we've got to be mindful that yes, attrition is births and deaths, but everybody in America is also moving up every day, the age calendar. And there are, that that demographically 
uh, changes the equation as well. Yeah, good question though. These are smart questions. Uh, okay, this one's about former Trump supporters. So in December, uh, our friend George Conway was on C-SPAN and he was asked about his support for Trump in 2016. And he said, and I'll quote George, I was confused by Donald Trump. I'm ashamed I supported him in 2016. It was a mistake of judgment, a mistake of moral judgment. I want to make amends for that. Uh, And at the show, this show, we love George. Uh, We know he's been through hell and he sacrificed a lot for speaking out against uh, Donald Trump and for sounding alarm bells. He's not the only former Trump supporter in that boat. And recently we've talked on the show about former administration officials raising the alarm about the lawyers, for example. Trump is looking to hire to to a second term, basically to do his bidding regardless of the law, regardless of what the courts may think, um, uh, as just one component of his day one plan. Um, And so last week, Mike, uh, on the Roundup, you mentioned the observation that it seems more and more Republicans are beginning to find their voice on this. Uh, and I was wondering if you have anyone, is there anyone specific you have in mind or what brought that observation, uh, to mind? I have really wrestled with this personally, professionally, and even spiritually. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me explain why. Yeah. The never Trump era. And there's not a whole lot of us out there. You know, when, when we all talk, we all know who we're talking about. Uh, there were there were kind of the some the OGs right the original like you and I yeah. were there like the moment he came down the stairs we yeah. were never there yeah there are guys like Conway who voted for him in sixteen and thought that he could you know get better and you know and and then changed for the twenty twenty election there's now people that were with him two times and are saying you know I can't do it again and and there are people in the administration who have now people, a whole well, bunch well, of people from the administration who've said. Yeah. Terrible the, things people, the people in the administration give me the most tortured complex about this. I want to explain why. And George's language is extremely important. Now, this this a lot of this you can dismiss as just Mike Madrid stuff, but this is the way that I see it. Yeah. The danger in the rise of Trump was not that he's a crazy man and that there's a third of the population, 40% of the population that will love him and run off a cliff for him. That That is concerning, but it was never as alarming to me as the enabling class that allowed it, that knew that it was wrong, but were not willing to sacrifice life, treasure, money, contracts, status to, to do what they knew was right. That's That was the danger. So he, here's here's the language that George used that was very important because I'm not as accepting as most a lot of people are of people who are just saying, come on in. We'll welcome yeah. everybody and everybody's numbers, which is a little bit odd as a political campaign guy. It's like, yeah. maybe you ought to take them in. To me, if you take in the bad people that are the, are the weakest spined, you know, yellow-bellied cowards that allowed it to happen in the first place, you're not really solving the problem. And I, I acknowledge, fully acknowledge my own personal yeah. limitations in that. Yeah. But Conway said, I am making amends for what I did. That is what we call, at least in the Catholic tradition, an act of contrition. It means not only am I saying I'm sorry, I'm doing something about it. That person is is deserving of forgiveness, regardless of the sin. And I've been lambasted on this in social media. I'm saying, could you forgive Trump? Of course I could forgive Trump. If he was genuinely sorry, if he was genuinely sorry and said, I want to make amends to make this better, I believe in my tradition that 
God's love is so enormous. <laughs> if God's going to forgive him, who am I not to forgive him? Right. Yeah. But, but the, the act of saying, I am sorry for what I did is the beginning point. And without that, you're not changing anything. In my opinion, you're just an opportunist. And there's yeah. a lot of former Trump people that are getting book deals and book contracts and, 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 you know, TV appearance and shows that have never said, I'm sorry for what I did. You will hear them sometimes say, I'm sorry I couldn't make Trump a better man. Yeah. I, or even Chris Christie, who says, I, yeah. I'm sorry that I, you know, um, I tried as hard as I could to make him an adult. It's like, yeah. you were too smart for that. I, you knew what was I, going on. You're not accepting your own actions that made yeah. this country worse. Yeah. And I will forgive you once you acknowledge what we both know to be true, because that's what I believe. But until that act of contrition takes place, all I'm doing is enabling another opportunist to do what Donald Trump did and empower him even more. So yeah, I've, got, I've, got, I've got this real problem with people. Like I said, Stephanie Grisham has said, I am sorry. I will do whatever it can I take. George Conway, I'm sorry. Yeah. He said it again. He says it regularly. I, I make, I, I want to make amends. I'm sorry. I made a mistake that hurt this country and I'm going to do something to make it better. An act yeah. of, of contrition. Most of these, you know, new, new never Trumpers are never, are, they're never, they're not saying. They were sometimes Trumpers and now they're never they're, Trumpers. They're, 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 they're going where the advantage is. Yeah. There's a and range not, here of, there's of, a range here. There's and a I range have, from le- reputation laundering to yes. uh, I genuinely want to correct course that I was a part of setting. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a wide range here. Now that's, a, I think that you, you have to look at this question, I think from different, uh, for different purposes. Yeah. The one you're articulating now, I think is a moral one. Yeah. There's also a political one. Uh-huh. And if you look at this through a political lens, even the people like Chris Christie, who I think are glossing over what they did in an attempt to appear more consistent in their position than they ever were, which right. is what politicians do. And yet he's politically useful. In if you aim him in the right direction, he's politically useful. I would say the same for someone like Bill Barr, who said, quote, someone who engaged in that kind of bullying about a process that is fundamental to our system and to our self-government shouldn't be anywhere near the Oval Office, end quote. Also, Bill Barr worked for him, right? So I appreciate these things. And quotes like that are politically powerful. They're useful. Yes. And so you have to look at this through, I think, different lenses. You do, but and 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 I try to. And George yeah. Conway is actually very good at this. George is very accepting of everybody saying we need them in the fight. Okay, yeah. like yeah. we're this yeah. ragtag group of rebels. Give this guy a musket and turn him on, and who cares? Just let him shoot, and doesn't have to be a good guy for the moment. We're in this existential fight. He's he's right. He's he, yeah. that's absolutely right. But what I'm saying is, I don't want to forget who these people are. I'm under no yeah. false illusion that these are the people that allowed this to happen in the first place. Cassidy Hutchinson, I'm sorry. You, yeah. you know, you're not a hero. You're not. I'll say it. Get her on the show and we'll have this conversation. You're not a she hero. Useful, also not you a hero. Alyssa Frog Griffin, same bucket. Yeah. Exactly. Both of them. It's like yeah. you turned on him when you were facing jail time because of all the bad shit you did up until yeah. this point. But that makes you a hero. And if we make that a hero in this country, and in this society, oh, it explains the rise of Trumpism. It yeah. explains why a guy like Trump can be the president of the United States. 
So yeah, okay, keep saying what you're going to be saying on these talk shows. Keep saying what you're saying. Go make millions of dollars by being an opportunist. I guess that's fine. That's what we reward in this society. But I'm not saying that what you're doing is okay. Yeah. You, you, what you've done, what you need to make amends for what you've done. What? Stephanie Grisham, I like I said, is- I've never met. I've never met Stephanie Grisham. I've never had a conversation with her, but she has said, "I don't deserve to make money." off of what I did because what I did was bad. Mm. That person is genuinely sorry. If yeah. you're on The View or if you're getting a multi-seven-figure book deal and have never apologized for your actions, you're just saying, let me warn you about democracy and the threat of it. Listen, Cassidy Hutchins, just like 26 years old, warning us about democracy after she spent 95% of her career undermining it. Yeah. And somehow, I, and somehow we valorize that. Like that's, 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 that is a sign of weakness in a society that doesn't have a moral standard. And look, I'm not here to moralize and say I'm better than everybody else. Hell, far from that. Like I, I don't meet that bar at all, but at least I'm honest about acknowledging that. Like yeah. that's the point. I think you have to ask them, what did it cost you? What did it cost you? And I think if the, if that equation is sort of positive, then it's kind of obvious ambition was your North Star, not, morality yes and i like i said i don't begrudge these people doing what they're doing but when i read tim miller's book about why we did it and the last yeah. profile person is Alyssa griffin and i was like why is this sticking with me so wrong and because she she has absolutely no contrition she never has said i'm sorry for what i did yeah. i'm sorry that i woke up every day advancing donald trump's agenda to move the country to where it is at this point her only, her only admonition to herself is, oh, after January 6th, I couldn't do it. That was the moment. Like everything up until that was okay. <laughs> like, yeah. and the fact if that, that was the moment coming, you got off the bus, then when you, when she was in the room, when those conversations were happening, like, come on, stop it. Like you just yeah. woke up and act and all of a sudden it happened. Bullshit. Yeah. Got she part of the, the clouds and suddenly she had an epiphany. She was, that this she was, was in wrong. charge of driving the message on all that. And like I said, I'm not here to judge her. But that doesn't mean I, 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 I have to walk blind eyed into something and say, Oh, oh yeah, they're on the good side. So there's this bilateral, you know, conflict that we're in. Uh, yeah. While that's true, there's a bigger moral, spiritual, ethical dilemma the country faces that allowed this to happen in the first place where opportunists are the ones that are rewarded. And until we change that, we're never going to get anywhere. George Conway is a perfect example. He lost a lot, folks. I lost a lot in this. Yeah. Okay. But he's standing up for doing what he is right. To me, that he, George, and again, I'm a big fan and he's a dear friend, yeah. but I, he's also somebody that I admire greatly yeah. for, for what he has lost for doing the right thing and for his country, including acknowledging his failings publicly. It's yeah. just extraordinary. He'd yeah. make a great biography. At some without point. caveat, without without any buts. Like he, it's just and that's it. There, he's a good buts, man. Yeah, yeah. Once there's buts, there's not. It's not a genuine apology. Like yeah. be sorry. We all make mistakes. Every single one of us. Yep. I'm, me, me. You know, out there too. I will apologize and have apologized for things that I've done in my career, my personal life, my professional life, and I'm sure I'll keep doing it. I'm not. I'm like I said. I'm not here to moralize. But what I am to say is, as an observer of what is wrong with American culture, is mm. we don't have the capacity to realize that that contrition is a virtue. Anyone There's, who's ever ever actually interrogated the question for themselves uh, of what makes a good apology, or what is a true, a sincere apology, knows that there's never a but. You just stop. You just 
you contrition is not an explanation. Exactly. And it's uh, not a qualifier either. It's not a, there's not a, there's no qualifiers. There's no yeah. qualifiers. I'm sorry. Yeah. I yeah. did something wrong. Yeah. But 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 no no no. I did something wrong. And to and I lo- it's lovely the way George does it. I'm here to make amends. Yeah. Like I'm not just sorry. I I'm I could go make a gazillion dollars a year as a lawyer, but no, I'm going to spend all of my time, effort and life energy making up for what I did. And now what a, a, a bad judgment, by the way, he was not looking to go make more money. Right. He's making plenty of money before this. Yep. He's, just, he's a man of in, extraordinary integrity. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's just linger on this for just a moment longer, because I just want to kind of tease out how important these voices are looking at this through the political lens. Okay. Let's set the, 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 the moral question aside, which is deep and real and is a far more systemic problem, I think, in American culture. Through a political lens, how important are these voices going to be in trying to peel off more Trump voters uh, in 2024? Or has has that sort of ship sailed? Is that not, are, are, these, are these voices all that? I consider them useful, but I really don't know how useful they will be. And I think it depends on who they are and how many of them there are. There, there. Look, I mean, the more the merrier, I guess, right? And that's the way you got to look at it. I, do, do these voices are they moving the needle in any measurable way? No, they are. They are creating a space for others to stop and reflect and say, "Okay, there are other people that have come to this conclusion too. It's not just me." And I'm convinced that that is what is required. So, you know, like I said, everybody who who is making amends. God bless you. Come on over, join the team, grab a musket, but you're going to the front lines. <laughs> you've got yeah. a special, you've got a special yeah. role that you've got to play here. I was under no false illusion that Chris Christie was helping this effort. I think he was actually hurting it when he got into the mm. primary because mm. what he was really doing was mobilizing the Trump base against what we were mm. doing. And I think he would have been far more powerful if he had been contrite and explained why he did what he did, because that's something that would have appealed to people yeah. who, who aren't, you know, the average voter isn't like, gosh, I feel really terrible about voting for Donald Trump. There are some of those. You've met some of those on the path. Yep. Yep. Those, and some of those people have, those have already turned. The question now becomes, can we finally say as more and more voices come out, is it my time for reckoning? Is it my time for questioning? I would do personal, you know, this last weekend, I had a very long talk with, with, a, with a, a, a man I met on my very first campaign back in 1992. We've been very, very dear friends ever since. And um, he, we, we stopped talking during my time with the Lincoln Project and during the mm-hmm. Trump era. It, I it, have our, some of those. Yeah, our yeah. relationship just crashed. And we had a stronger personal relationship than a professional relationship. And we, 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 we weren't able to talk anymore. We have since fixed that. But through the course of that, and, and I, I think I shared it with you, and I don't mean to be going on so long here on the mailbag That's section, because I want to get the questions, but we had lunch with a, with a man named Stu Spencer this past Sunday. Stu Spencer uh, is 97 this month, and he, he asked to meet with, with the two of us. He met us 25 years ago as young Latinos in the business. And um, Stu Spencer was the political consultant for Ronald Reagan. He, he was, he was, uh, he got, he got Reagan elected governor in California and became one of the first, really the first modern political consultant. And, um, you know, we, we I, the, I wanted to go because I knew the dynamics of the three of us having this conversation were interesting because I knew Stu would, was, is very anti Trump. And I wanted to see what it was like for a 97 year old man who built, really helped build the modern Republican Party. How mm-hmm. does he feel about where things are at? 
Mm-hmm. And he, he had some remarkable insight where he, you know, he, he basically, you know, didn't know where, where he knew where I was at on this, but he was, he was, you know, expressing deep reservations, not just as a Republican, not just as a man who was really kind of the last keeper of Reagan's flame, uh, in terms of legacy as, as somebody who knew and guided him at a personal level, but for the country mm-hmm. and saying how, how deeply, deeply corrosive and destructive we are at this moment with, with this man, um, you know, in, in this moment in American history. And, and, and later on that day, I could see the change in my, my friend who was like, mm. you know, maybe, maybe I've been wrong about this. From a, from uh, a, from a Titan in the profession. Yeah. A titan, that, that's, and that's what it took. Right. Yeah, but yeah. that's, so it, it is, it is one by one brick by brick drip by drip. And I think when it's so hard for people like you and I who've been in this fight since the beginning and have seen such little progress, we get tired, we get demoralized, we get, you know, cynical. We just want to throw up our hands and say, y'all are rotten. But then another brick falls. Like if you had told me in, in 2016, 2017, that Liz Cheney would join the effort, I'd been like, no way. Yeah. Right. And yet there she is. And then the Adam Kinzinger's and the, you know, Chris Christie's like it's, it happens brick by brick. And so, as a practitioner, like you said, as a political calculation, each voice adds to the chorus. It gets louder. You may not yes. be able to hear it amongst the, the din, but it is getting louder. Yes. I think this goes back to the question you so, I think, elegantly put on the roundup last week. We were talking about AI, but this is a far more, it's a deeper question. In, in, in all of this chaos and the decline of the Republican Party, who are you? Who, who will you be? Right? And I think Watching watching people answer that question in their own way is um it's it's helpful, and we're all on our own path and yeah. trying to to do our own thing with it. And I don't judge that. I remember being when we were being filmed on the documentary Lincoln Project documentary, yeah. and George and and you and I and Jennifer Horn were in the same room, and and and, and Fisher Stevens asked us, you know, how, Mike, I'm I'm the last Republican. I'm still a Republican, and the question is like, how how can you still be? And I was like. Uh, it's the old Reagan adage. I haven't changed and mm. I'm not moving. It's a lot of things that I view wrong about the Catholic church. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm, I've stopped being a Catholic because of the orthodoxy. There's a yeah. lot of things wrong with America, but I'm, I'm still an American. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. And, yeah. and that doesn't mean there aren't people who make it, their own equal judgments about how to address it differently. Y- yourself or Jennifer or, or, yeah. or George saying, I'm out. I don't want to be affiliated with these people. I get that hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. 10 out of 10. Do your thing. My calling right now is is to be here to be this voice in the party of Frederick Douglass, the party mm-hmm. of Abraham Lincoln, the party of Thaddeus Stevens that says this meant something in American history. Yeah. This party, whatever it becomes, meant something. And I, I I will keep fighting for that until I'm done. And then when I'm done, it you know, I'll be the last one shutting out the lights and, and I'm okay with it if that's my role. Okay, let's move on. This is uh, from a couple of weeks ago. I had Alex Thompson on from Axios, who was uh, great. He was on the Roundup. And his look-ahead story was that we are uh, expecting to get a report from the special counsel investigating the mishandling of classified documents by President Biden when he left the White House as VP. Um, One of the things he said is that we might get the equivalent of a -a Mar-a-Lago photo of documents in Biden's garage. We don't know, but he thinks that's, you know, that's, likely possible. Uh, so we've talked before about this sort of uh, 
this criming theme, uh, sort of corruption as a theme, which I think is now completely saturated and bipartisan. Uh, <laughs> Trump's been trying to push this idea that, you know, they're the same. That's part of why he wants Biden to be impeached, he says. Um, question is, is this, does this all come out in a wash? Let's say we do get this photo and there's, you know, it's, it's, it's equivalent to what we saw in the photos of the Mar-a-Lago documents. Um, now, I'm not, not saying it is equivalent, but optically, there's going to be a lot of spin and say, well, he did exactly the same thing. Politically, does this come out in the wash? Uh, do you think, um, do you think any of this ends up being, uh, you know, impactful? I, I don't think it's impactful. I think it's going to, you know, I, um, it's not helpful, but it's not, yeah. um, people have drawn their conclusions and they've, they've drive a news cycle. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wrote in, 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 in this book, and we'll be talking a lot more about the book coming up. Yeah. Is, I'm one of the few people, you're probably one of them too, that was, that publicly called for Bill Clinton to be impeached and or resigned because of his indiscretions. And I, and I publicly called for Donald Trump's public indiscretions to, to have him either resign or be impeached. I'm proud of that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, we're, we're like 1% of the population that's yeah. did that. And everyone else equivocates for their own tribe or for their own side. Oh, you know, it was only... George, you know, George, George, uh, George is a great example of this. Yeah. I mean, well, yeah. oh, it wasn't really, you know, you can't impeach him because of what he was doing in the Oval Office with Monica Lewinsky. It's like, no, that's not what right. it was. He committed perjury is what right. happened. Yeah. Right? He lied under oath. Like, uh, the law matters. And if it matters... And so to watch like women's groups, sorry, I know that your, your viewership is going to get probably pissed off, but to watch women's groups fall over themselves to defend themselves and act like this wasn't a thing and to paper over it and protect mm -hmm. your tribe and, and put up walls and Hillary Clinton leading the charge to destroy Monica Lewinsky. Like this is, this is really bad, nefarious, ugly behavior, right? But it happened and the Democrats did that and they rallied despite evidence, despite the truth, despite the law to protect their guy. Then Republicans do it, right? And then we're like, mm -hmm. how can he possibly do that? It's like, you guys just did it yeah. a couple administrations ago. Yeah. Like, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's, if it's not, then all's fair. And so when I see something like, like Biden, you know, in pictures with, you know, uh, uh, you know, classified documents in the passenger seat of his Corvette in the garage, I'm like, that's not, that's not okay. It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not. Yeah. And I, I'm, it's also a false equivalency to say, you know, it's one is okay than the others. It's not. It, it shouldn't be a matter of one was Russian nuclear secrets and one was about you know you, you were doing your homework on the on the conflict in Eritrea. Like it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, like doesn't it, matter. Yeah. I mean, there are degrees of sin. There are degrees of law. There are degrees of malfeasance, and we should have those discussions. But don't tell me that it's just okay that Joe Biden did it because you trust him more because he's the leader of your tribe. Like that's not okay. Yeah, yeah, not okay. Uh, I will say there. Uh, I have noticed that every among my sort of friend group, vast majority of the Democrats I talk to, especially Democrats who work in politics, are like, "Yeah, Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton, we're really not proud of." And like they will say that that like we think he shouldn't be involved right now. It's, it's kind of okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's I a great re retail politician, but that legacy oof, stinks. We don't like it. Right? We're not. We don't want that on us. So yeah, it's, rem it's, it's well now, now, yeah, well now, we, we after, now, exactly. all, all, all after the Me Too movement, right? Now right. when it's convenient, it's like, oh yeah, right. no, 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 no. like right, it's right, remarkable right. that Bill Clinton, who was heralded as you know the the greatest of his generation, is yeah. completely absent from the scene. Like yeah. just there's just completely got away from the guy because it's indefensible. Yeah. It was indefensible <laughs> then, by the way, people. It was indefensible then. Yeah. The fact that you're willing to do it 
yeah. should give you some insight objectively into why Republicans are doing what they're doing with Donald Trump. It's not yeah. a false equivalency. I'm not saying they're the same. I am right. saying they both broke the law, but I am saying consider your own rationale. If you defended Bill Clinton, despite the evidence, despite his own words, despite his own testimony, despite all of it, <laughs> if you were defending a perjurer, yeah, you, you need to take a little self-inventory. Yeah, That's all I'm saying. Just yeah. take a look, take a look in the mirror and be yeah. like, okay, maybe I'm maybe in my own little way as part of the problem. Doesn't mean you can't yeah, and have I, an act, I think active that, contrition and go forward, yeah. but you're part of the problem. But I think that introspection is really important if you want to be a sincere sort of participant in what we're doing here, right? Well, if you yeah. want to be a tribalist, then fine, you can be a tribalist. It doesn't take yeah. a lot of brain cells to do that. You know what I mean? If you want yeah. to engage sincerely as yourself in this process of politics, which is just a fancy word for how we're going to organize our lives here, yeah. uh, then like be, be sincere, be authentic. Like, what is it? What is it we're doing here? Own your actions. Yeah, such a good, such a good way to put it. And and yeah. that doesn't put you at a disadvantage. By right, the way. I think it. I think it actually makes you it more credible, you. far more. Yes, exactly. It doesn't put you at a disadvantage just because Republicans may fight that way. Well, we're gonna, you know, if you debase yourself to the point of of of, of the debasing that made your enemies your enemies in the first place, what have you won? Right. I mean, this is exactly this is exactly how I was explaining it to my friends, my family, my colleagues in 2015 when Carly Fiorina lost to Donald Trump. And I was like, OK, yeah. if this guy's the guy, then I'm out. I'm yeah. not doing this. Fired my Republican clients. Yeah. Uh, I said, if you have to sell your soul to win, I don't think you get to call that a victory. And I think that's um, I think it's a little bit. Uh, that's Matthew, right? right? Matthew. Yeah, that's Matthew. That's right. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about religion in a minute. Actually, first let's uh, <laughs> let's talk about this um, easier topic. Easier topic. Yeah. No, no, no. First, I want to talk about. Yeah. Well, I actually want to get to World War before we do that. First, the UAW uh, endorsement. Um, yeah. Uh, question is okay. So, background. Uh, last week, uh, we should say after much ado, uh, Biden locked up finally the endorsement uh, from the United Auto Workers. Um, he made an unprecedented move step in and side with the UAW when they were striking. Uh, but the actual rank and file members of the UAW are obviously not a monolith. About a third of them voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. Um, so the question is how this, this invokes a lot of previous conversations I'm thinking of now. Um, but how should we think about the influence and weight of a union endorsement in the context of this realignment of working class voters who actually make up uh, the union members and I think you have to think about geography and battlegrounds here because we're talking about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, when uh, probably we're going to be looking toward um, Arizona, Arizona and um, Georgia uh, in 2024. So what's this endorsement worth, really? So, well, well, I'm laughing <laughs> because I saw the best tweet in a long time. Sorry. Uh, yeah, about this saying it's remarkable that Joe Biden, an Irish Catholic president whose greatest legislative accomplishment is called the IRA, got his biggest endorsement <laughs> from a guy named Sean Fain, <laughs> who heads the UAW. That <laughs> Rogers, by the way, brilliant tweet. Just brilliant. Right. Mm, uh, so, so good. So, yeah. So set that aside for a moment. Um, mm. 
Look, I I think uh, the UAW endorsement is a big deal because of, of Michigan. I'm going to be honest. You know, yeah. this thing is slowly slipping into play. And, uh, you know, Donald Trump had a huge opportunity to go in there and start making inroads um, during the. Oh, that was Connor's tweet, Mike. It was Connor's tweet. Yes, I bet yeah. you things off. That was Connor. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Really- Connor Rogers, who was on uh, on the digital team at uh, the Lincoln Project in 2020. Yeah. And yeah, sorry. Yeah. Irish Catholic yeah. president passes yeah. the IRA and biggest advocate is <laughs> Sean Fain. <laughs> it's hilarious. Just beautiful. Anyway. Um, look, the, 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 last, the, the, the last really strong uh, messengers for Democrats in this educational separation, this educational divide that's happening in the country is extraordinarily important. Um, to, to hold the line, candidly, it's not really to grow that base. They're losing it very quickly. And this group, overwhelmingly you know, white workers in the Rust Belt states, are still going to matter in places like Michigan and in Wisconsin, right? Where these, these, are, these are marginal places and marginal victories. But to your broader point, the 270 map is changing and it's changing. You know, the reason why we went after Arizona and Georgia was not because of, of unions and union strength. Right. We went there because of white collar high tech workers had been moving in there for a long time. It's why North Carolina, I think, is probably one of the really, truly uh, unique states that Biden can play offense in in this election cycle. It's not because it's an old South state. It looks a lot like Georgia with finance and biotech and, and, and high tech jobs. And all the white collar workers that have been brought in there, white workers overwhelmingly, by the way, who bring, you know, kind of a financially conservative, socially more progressive view of the world to, to these states in the South. And it's these northern states, the Rust Belt states. New Hampshire is a good example. New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, a lot of these states have Ohio, right? Which is now red, red, Pennsylvania, which has come into contention. Um, these states have higher than the national average numbers of white, non-college educated workers. Mm-hmm. And that's Trump's base. That's where he's at. And a lot of these folks are unionized. Now, when I was growing up, we called them Reagan Democrats um, because they were all union Democrats, but they were voting for Ronald Reagan. So the, the shift, the, the, the undercurrents, the, the foundational premise for, for, for why blue collar voters are moving towards Trump has been there for many decades be- before Trump. And I think a lot of this comes down, the best way to explain this is there is a true, genuine blue-collar culture in America Yeah, that is not understood or related to by white-collar workers. And we have had over the, an explosion over the last 30 years of people going to college, okay? And so now, even though 60% of the voters in America still do not have a college degree, that gap is closing. And the divide is not even an economic divide. There are plenty of people without a college degree that are making $150,000, $200,000 a year. We saw them on January 6th that absolutely mm-hmm. love Donald Trump. It's not an economic divide. Okay. We, we used to, in the old days, you know, 20 years ago, we would look and say, oh, your, eco- your college degree has allowed you to make more money. Therefore, you're going to become more Republican. More wealthier people are increasingly becoming Democrats. And it is correlates to that college degree, but it's not, it's not, uh, I'm sorry, it's, 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 it's commensurate. It's not, it's not necessarily uh, the cause, right? It's not mm-hmm. causation. It's not causing right. that. Correlated. It, it's, and so 
I'm sorry if I'm getting confused, if I'm getting a little bit muddled here in my explanation, but what is happening with the educational divide is as these college degreed people have an isolate into their own culture where they have their own perspectives on race and immigration and gender and and gun culture. These cultures are very distinct and growing Mm -hmm. more distinct than blue collar culture. And so it's not about income. It's increasingly about region because we've been self-sorting for the same 30 years. And it's why red states are getting redder and blue states are getting bluer. And so your question about UAW, it ultimately helps Biden for sure, but it doesn't help the way that it used to help. Right, right. I think it also, I mean, it helps him in a narrative sense, right? He can't afford not to have this, right? It would be a major, well, ma- that, ma- exactly. major blow if they didn't actually end up endorsing Which Reagan, that, got, that the, Reagan, Reagan got the UAW endorsement in 1984, <laughs> right? Like that's, yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a story, right? That's yeah, a, a massive story. blow, right? Yeah. And that's what that would have been. Or even yeah. if they sat on their hands and were like, right. ah, look, yeah. that would have hurt Biden terribly. But have, being the union man and un, the union narrative of being the working man and, and working families, that narrative doesn't work anymore. Right. Because, because union rates have dropped so much, very few people have union jobs. Yeah. And the answer to that with globalization is not let's unionize more because, I, sure, I, I mean, right. I guess, but man, I'd love to live in a world with unicorns and rainbows too. That's not the way the economy works anymore. Yeah. Unions have to really dramatically update their message because last century's solutions don't work in this century. Let's get back to listeners. Danella Kay wrote in just after the Hamas terrorist attack on October 7th, and she asked, does it feel to you like it does to me that we are getting perilously close to another world war? Uh, with the war in Ukraine, with the war breaking out between Israel and Hamas, with China itching to invade Taiwan, with North Korea aiding Russia and Iran aiding Hamas, it feels like it won't take much for these separate battles to escalate into a major global war. So I want to build on uh, Danella's question here and uh, invoke um, one of my favorite thought leaders on this topic, which is Ray Dalio. And I've mentioned him before, Bridgewater Associates, largest uh, hedge fund in the world. Um, and when you, when I say largest, think uh, like Bridgewater, you know, hedge funds, uh, large hedge funds tend to manage money for uh, very large institutions and billionaires and corporations. Um, Bridgewater manages money for governments and nation states. So that's their, their it's a macroeconomic uh, hedge fund. They, um, they, they manage money for countries. So they're looking at the big picture and long-term cycles. So Ray is now in his uh, twilight years and wants to give back uh, this knowledge that he's accumulated over the years and how he looks at the uh, the world economy. And he has extensively sort of analyzed historical patterns and cycles, particularly in the context of changing world orders, which he's uh, detailed in uh, in, a, in a in a in multiple books and videos now. Um, and in his exploration of the various types and phases of war that can occur uh, as the world order changes, he he. He outlines different kinds of wars and that they, they sort of evolve into one another. You have trade wars, right? When countries impose tariffs or trade barriers against each other. You have technology wars that involve a struggle for uh, technological supremacy. Uh, you have geopolitical wars, which are uh, often where countries are vying for strategic positioning, influence, and power. You have capital wars, which involves uh, attempts to influence and control global capital and currency and financial markets. Um, 
Uh, and then you have Cold Wars, which represent a state of sort of political, political military tension where you avoid direct conflict, uh, but indirect methods such as you know, espionage, propaganda, uh, proxy conflict. Then you have Hot Wars, military conflicts, and these are the most direct and violent forms of conflict, uh, armed confrontation between nations, groups within nations. So, um, da- so Dalio emphasizes that these types of wars and conflicts don't occur in isolation. They're interconnected. They evolve uh, from one form to another, but, um, but that often these softer forms of war precede hot military conflicts and the victor of these conflicts emerges as you know, the one who gets to shape the new world order, the leader of the global world order, which is currently the United States threatened by China. So if you think about this, Danella, you've got uh, US-China. We have a trade war started in 2018. We have a technology war. Think Huawei, TikTok. We have geopolitical uh, competition. There's a geopolitical component in uh, Taiwan. Uh, And we have a Cold War. You could argue competition for global influence, attempt to spread the yuan uh, to other countries, to competing with the U.S. dollar, and sort of put a question mark after hot war, right? We don't know yet, but China's, as you noted, uh, itching to invade. And you've got U.S. and Russia, obviously, a hot and geopolitical war in Ukraine, uh, which we saw up close, Mike. You have a capital war. U.S. has seized Russia's foreign reserve assets, imposing brutal sanctions. And now we have the Middle East. We have a hot war between Israel and Hamas and Iran's proxies in Yemen and elsewhere. And so I think obviously uh, Danella is right. It feels like the dominoes are all lined up and it's only going to take one tipping at the right moment. Um, How do you think about this? Well, I'm a big fan of uh, Ray Dalio's too. You kind of turned me on to his, uh, his thinking and his writing. And I think he's, he's pretty brilliant. Um, I think Danella's um, asking the right question, but as, as I've shared with, with you and listeners here before, I believe we are not only already at war, I believe we've been in a war, um, global war for the better part of 10 years preceding the 2016 election. And uh, what I want people to really understand is we have a, a conventional understanding of what war looks like because so many of us were raised with black and white images of, you know, the, 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 the battle of Britain or, you know, the, the fight in France, you know, with uh, fighting against Nazi Germany. We think that that's all that, that's what a war is. That's what, a, 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 and that while that is true, uh, war and warfare, like everything else in society, has changed dramatically. Yeah. And, and I think one of, the, one of the reasons why you and I were both compelled to go to Ukraine was yeah. that was the moment, while it was a battle of authoritarianism versus democracy, it was a battle versus East versus West, it was the flashpoint of all of these forces and all these different types of warfare meeting in one physical location on the globe at that point. And and we were both keenly aware, and we discussed this on a train ride from Lviv to Kiev, going from the, near the Polish border to the to the Donbass on the Eastern Front, the, the, having this conversation about what what we were looking for, what mm-hmm. this moment meant in world history, because this is truly going to be a defining event for world history, and and the changing nature of combat and warfare and what it's going to look like. And and for for whatever reason, you and I wanted to kind of see that experience, and, and Molly McHugh was kind of our guide through, yeah. through that part of the world. It was an extraordinary moment. Um, and and I say that because um, there we, we are we are this is we are in World War Three, and I'm trying to say that without being alarmist, 
Yeah. But it's hard to look at the evidence and suggest that that is not the case. When so many foreign actors, nefarious actors, are so involved in disrupting our society aggressively, so involved in managing and disrupting our elections aggressively, if you do not think that the attack uh, on, on October 7th in Israel wasn't related to Iranian and Russian involvement, you're missing what is happening. Mm-hmm. The, the axis of evil, as it were, is Russia, Iran, and China. And they all have a vested interest in seeing the decline of the American empire and us being removed from a position of global hegemony. The last time we faced a moment this critical, I would suggest, is not even Pearl Harbor, you know, and, 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 and the, the, the dark shadow descending upon Europe with Nazism. It was, it was afterwards. It was the aftermath in trying to establish the new global order. When, perhaps coincidentally, we had a president who nobody really wanted to be president, who was just kind of parked there as a placekeeper, who was not an eloquent speaker, who was an aging older fella from, you know, an unremarkable state with an unremarkable legislative record in the name of Harry Truman. And Harry Truman, I think, is is, he's on he's he's on one of our coins for a reason. It's like, why is Harry Truman there? It's because he reestablished literally the entire global order during his administration. And I think we're going to be looking at Harry Truman a lot more in the coming years because mm-hmm. that's where Israel becomes a state. That's where NATO and the Marshall Plan really start to come into not only origin, but to start to take effect. It's where we start to draw the first lines against the global threat of communism at that time. And the, the war, the, the, the battle lines at that time we're not unlike they are now between East-West authoritarianism versus dictatorship, democracy versus, you know, uh, fascism. But this time the tools are different and we can, we can literally destroy each other's economies and our societies without ever, uh, you know, launching artillery shells or nuclear bombs. Um, and you're seeing the division in our society right now extraordinary watching these Republican governors basically defying and wanting to send troops to the border in outright defiance of the federal government. That's guys, that's exactly what the civil war looked like and began like, I mean, history is rhyming really, really closely right now. Like and, and Abbott in Texas is pushing for an, for, for an internal conflict. They're, they're itching for a war that's exactly what the Russians want. That's what the, exactly what the Russians have been financing. That's exactly what that wing of, and I say wing, it's, it's the majority of the Republican Party is pushing for. It's for civil strife. That's the best way to win this conflict is not to go to, to size up the United States on three fronts, although that's what's happening, right? The, the conflict in Ukraine is, is, is yeah. occupying Western Europe. Israel needs the United States backing it up as its ally. So they're trying to spread with the Houthis and other Iranian funded organizations to draw our, our Navy and our resources and our, and our, and, 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 and public opinion into the Middle East as the conflict there is spreading because that's by design. The Iranians want to open that front up the way, you know, Italy did with Germany. And then China is looking and reading all of this and watching. This is all part of a methodical plan. This is not coincidence. Is we're asking, can the United States fight a global a global conflict on three fronts? That has always been the question. And the most likely scenario, 
for for us losing is to have us spread thin on three different fronts, which we are currently prepared, I think, to win at enormous cost. But the variable is not if we're engaged in an internal civil conflict. If we, the United States, start to go to war with one another, we are perilously close. That's the best remedy and solution for those three enemies to take over the world. That's the goal. That's what's happening. And that is by design. So if we don't think that what is happening, what is happening in this country is not organic. It is being fueled and fomented with millions and millions of dollars paying for the Republican Party to turn on this country. I believe that with all my heart. I've seen more than enough evidence. I experienced it on the 2020 campaign, and it's not hard to draw the connection to, to connect the dots anymore. That's why it's so dangerous. And that's what we're facing at this moment in U.S. and world history. Yes. Yes. Uh, fully, fully cosign. I think that this uh, conversation is incomplete unless we articulate that this is a war over values. And the reason we are not prepared to win a war on three fronts when we're internally divided is because we will not be united in the values we are fighting for. We don't know what we are fighting for collectively. And without that, without, this is why, as you mentioned before, Lincoln was obsessed with union. Without a shared sense of what America is, what its role is in the world, and what our values are, it's very difficult to win a battle for hearts and minds outside of our own borders. And that's ultimately what this is about. We've talked about how China as part of their global, I'm not sure what the initiative is called, but they spell out that they want to get rid of the idea of universal values. The fact that universal values can exist in the first place, China is opposed. They they want a more uh, anarchical uh, world without uh, any, uh, they, they don't want NATO because they don't believe in the values NATO is there to defend, right? This is, this ultimately comes down to, um, who are human beings going to be? Which direction is humanity going? Yeah, look, I mean, democracies are threats to, 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 to dictatorships. Right. It's, their existence is a threat because people start getting these ideas. Like maybe we don't need the dictator. Maybe we don't need Putin. Maybe we don't need Xi. Maybe we don't need the mullahs. That, 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 democracy is a very revolutionary act, and it's still a very new act in the course of human history. This experiment is still very, very much experimental. It's only been a couple hundred years. Right. The, the, the model of fascism, the strong man, the tribal chieftain has been with us since we, you know, climbed, climbed out of the primordial swamp. This yeah. idea that somehow we could all share power essentially amongst everybody and elevate people's role in their own lives is an extraordinarily new and novel concept. Yeah. And most people don't believe that it really has that much of a runway. We, we as Americans, as living beings who've, wo- who've lived the vast majority of our life w- in a time of global American hegemony at a time when we were the dominant power in the world and at a time of relative peace have really lost the plot here of how fragile and how radically revolutionary what we're doing on this little continent is and how it probably only happened because we were protected by friendly neighbors to the south and to the north and by these two oceans. It's the perfect Petri dish to allow this to actually experiment to take place. Uh, America couldn't have happened in the middle of the European continent. It couldn't have happened in Eurasia. It couldn't have happened in the Middle East. It couldn't have happened anywhere but by this great fortune of, of, of history and this yeah. accident that it happened in this time and in this place. 
And so it, it will always be under threat because in many ways, I think we're, we're just biologically constituted. And it's why we yeah. react to the fears and the threats and the anger and the outrage that we do that fuels dissent. And that dissent, once it becomes intractable, the only solution is fascism. The yeah. only solution is the strong man. I alone can fix right. the problems here. Right. That's what it's designed to do. Yeah. And that's, that is the fight that we, we, we face. And like, uh, you know, we, we've been saying uh, this, this is a global conflict already. And you're in it. And in you, a listener, each individual person is already in it. We've talked before about borders and the way the digital landscape has removed. And you're not helpless. You're, you're not, helpless. not helpless. You're both a combatant and yeah. a target at the same yeah. time. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and that's just the way life is going to be going forward is if you're not advocating for what you believe, you're succumbing to what others would have done to you. Yeah. And that's, that's just the way the world is. It's yeah. a death. That's not terribly unlike most Europeans throughout the course of human history is, you know, as yeah. the French are always looking at what's going on with the, the Spanish right. English coming across the channel. And that's you know, right. what are the things doing like that's it's Game of Thrones. Right. We have been insulated from that up yeah. until the digital age. And we yeah. are no longer insulated from that. This is the way that most of humanity has lived their lives yeah. in all of recorded history. Yeah. No, now that bad actors are buying or stealing uh, and exploiting our data and our attention to change your mind, to change what's going on in your brain. And the more time you spend in front of a screen, you, you should be thinking that, isn't it? As, 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 God, I hate to say it this way, but it's an attack vector. As campaign professionals, we think about it as an attack vector. It's a, it's a, it's, a, <laughs> that's what it is. That's what's happening here. And if you think for a moment that every second of your screen time, isn't being bought and paid for by somebody who wants to change you, manipulate your behavior in some way, you haven't figured it out yet. Um, it's a much cheaper way to, to conduct war than rolling yeah. tanks through the Donbass. It's just, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's a, look, I'm proud of the fact that we have, we have eliminated 50% of you know, Russia's military capacity with 5% of our budget. Like That's an extraordinary number in the kinetic war. Yeah. But we're not getting the rate of return that, that Putin's getting by his investments right. on TikTok ads and, and Facebook right. ads. I mean, he's, yep. he's, he's killing it. Yeah. For, for the amount, of, for the many millions he's spent, that's a fraction of well, what the CCP and their, and their influence with, uh, Gen Z in America. Yeah. Or, yeah. yeah it's a hundred yeah. precisely. I mean, if, if, if you told me, Russia could, you know, in 2014, when, when he invaded Crimea, that if he spent $30 million, and in 15 years, he could have us going to war with one another all day long. Oh, yeah. Like that, yeah. I'd spend $30 billion on that and it's still <laughs> cheap, right? And that's yeah. what's happening is, yeah. is this strife that we are seeing with one another is because we are so plugged in to this, this, these platforms that are manipulating our thoughts and isolating uh, our, our, our visions and our worldview and making it impossible to work with one another. We now view you know, Ukraine in many ways is as as a more um um sympathetic figure than than Texans. Yeah. Right? And vice yeah. versa. Yeah. Right? Is Russians yeah. you know are more on the side of exactly. Russians than they are Californians. Yeah. <laughs> I mean like yeah. right. And at that point, you know, that they have tremendously destabilized the strongest global hegemonic quote unquote threat as they see it. V very cheaply, by the way. I wanted to talk about Christian nationalism, but let's let's save that for the next one. Let's save that for the next one because we just crossed the hour mark. So I want to start to wrap this up. 
um, because that's going to be a whole thing. So, so uh, why don't you know? I'm going to share some reviews. I think here because we've gotten some good ones. We appreciate your reviews, and I want you to know we appreciate your reviews. So I'm going to read some of them on Apple Podcasts. Uh, one reviewer wrote, uh, "Seriously, hope to meet you one day. Love this show." Another reviewer wrote, fantastic combination of thoughtful and insightful discussion of political and social issues and how they shape American and international relationships. Uh, thank you. Here's one more. This is an excellent podcast. It's important to listen to and understand different points of view, even when I don't agree with something. I never feel that the people on the podcast are speaking in bad faith or that their beliefs aren't based on evidence. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that kind of review because it's a high praise. I read that as high praise because um, we do have a lot of differing opinions and views come through uh, the show. And I think it's essential. It's essential to understand how other people are viewing problems. And I think it's, even, I think it's extremely important to expose yourself to um, well-formed arguments that you disagree with uh, so that you can... Um, Maybe it's persuasive to you, or maybe it sharpens your own views, your own ability to defend your views. And so I think that's, um, I take that, I take that to heart and I appreciate that one uh, a lot. So uh, these reviews, obviously, and the ratings in Apple Podcasts really do help us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. Um, so if you have a minute, we'd really appreciate it if you uh, could go to the show on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review there. Um, and one share more with others. I mean, we're building yeah. a community here. This is about building a community of thinkers yes. and thinking people. And th- this is not the cheerleading section, right. right? If you want that, you can get that at the, the penny store down on the corner, places. all over the place on the internet. If yeah. you're looking for thoughtful discussion for people who don't always agree, but but yeah, I, I I heard the other day that you know the best way to 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 know whether you you've been thoughtful about your opinion is to to clearly articulate your opponent's best yes. criticism of your argument and to be able to understand it. And if you can't do that, yep. you don't really have a well-formed thought or opinion on your own point of view. Yep. And that's, I think, really describes the show. It's like there's a lot of us who don't agree on these things, but mm-hmm. we're doing it in a way that is thoughtful. We, we disagree a lot. We agree a lot. Yep. And we usually point that out <laughs> yeah. because yeah. we're trying to come to a deeper understanding. There's nobody here who's saying, I am right about all of this. It's I want to learn more. And um, that's what I love about, about, about the show. Totally. Uh, there's one more um, that I wanted to note here. Where is it? Oh, yeah. From Sharon, uh, who wrote in and said, I'm a fan of your podcast. You do a great job. Thank you, thank you for all your hard work. Would you ever consider traveling and doing a live show in town hall? I feel like it would be hugely successful. We're one year out and people need to get serious and informed. I share the podcast with people, but some who don't regularly listen to podcasts may not listen. I think a town hall where you could both uh, video and record for the podcast would be very interesting. You have some regular guests who would be key, such as Mike Madrid. It's hard to ever disagree with what he says. (laughs) Uh, He makes me want to go to grad school and learn more political theory. Well, uh, should you ever consider this, I hope I will be the first to know so I can get front row tickets. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Yes. Very, very kind. And um, yes, we're absolutely considering it and would like to do it uh, definitely this campaign season. So stay tuned and, uh, and sign up for Politicology Plus because you'll probably hear about it there first. So, all right, folks, uh, that's it for today. 
And if you want to write to us about anything we've talked about or you want to drop a question in the mailbag, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And now you can even leave us a voicemail by calling 202-455-4558. And we might even play it on the next show. I'm Ron Steslow. See you in the next episode. 